0: The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2019 Campus Outreach New Year's Conference. More information about Campus Outreach New Year's Conference can be found at conycindy.com. Hey, guys. Hey, I want you to buy this little book. I wrote this book. It's in the bookstore. And uh, I think you can read it in like 45 minutes. So it's a really easy read. Um, and I'm going to s- speak more on it uh, tomorrow night on evangelism. But I'd like you to have it because I think it's important as you understand evangelism in community. So in our first talk yesterday evening, we we talked about a closer look at the big picture of the gospel. And this morning we took a closer look at the identity of Jesus. And tonight I want to take a closer look at our response to Jesus as Lord, making sure that that is our identity you know, the older I get, the more I see how important the university days are, and how much you are deciding about your entire life. The things that you're doing now, you know. Every, everybody tells you. I, have you noticed this? Everybody tells you that the days ahead of you, out of the university, are like bigger and better and more important and more stressful and all that stuff. Have you heard that? Have you heard that kind of stuff? I mean, you know. You think you have time? You think you're you don't have any time right now? Just wait till you get out, right? You, people tell you that. I think all that stuff's a lie. <laughs> I think some of the most stressful days I ever had was in university. Like I still have bad dreams about exams. You know, I have that dream that I suddenly wake up. You know, I figure out that I I had this class I was supposed to take, and I I go take this exam, and it's always in Greek or something, and You know, it's terrifying. People tell college students lies all the time. They tell you your most important days are ahead of you, right? But I say the most important things that you do are today, these days, today. Because today you make choices. We're not even sure we have a tomorrow. A number of years ago, Leanne, uh, my wife, was facing some serious depression in her life. It was, it was a number of years ago, maybe like 12 years ago. And there were a lot of factors in that. We, uh, we were overseas. We'd been living overseas for a while. Cross-cultural living is stressful. Uh, we, our middle son was autistic, and he, he, he was being homeschooled. We had relied a lot on Tristan, our oldest son with him, who was really good with our middle son. But he left for college. Um, and just depression and anxiety fell on her. It was like a ton of bricks. It went on for a number of years. And by God's grace, it eventually lifted. If you have problems with depression, anxiety, um, uh, fears, she'd love to talk to you. She'd love to talk with you about that. But during those days, a good friend, Michael Lawrence, who's praying for us, caring for us, told us to remember that according to the Bible, there are only two days we, wor- we really worry about It's the day, today, and the day. There is this the day in the Bible. So we get through the day. Jesus said, tomorrow's got plenty of worries. They're going to be there for you tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. And the day when either Jesus returns or we meet him in the afterlife. The passage that we just read for you is about the day which I'll I'll explain more, but the day is the most important day of your life, more than graduation, more than your wedding day, more than the birth of your first child. It's the day when you will stand before God. So Matthew 7, this passage we just read, comes at the end of one of Jesus's most famous teachings called the Sermon of the Mount. It's the very end of that. It's just just a couple of short verses, but I have three really important points. The Lordship of Christ, the will of God, and true righteousness. So let's talk about the Lordship of Christ. When they heard Jesus say, verse 21, which was, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, in this first phrase, in the first sentence, it's not even a full sentence, but verse 21, Jesus says something astonishing. It's easy to skip over. But he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So, stop right there. Um, Let me me highlight how this would have sounded to the people in Jesus' day. When Jesus said that, they would have thought he was a madman even his own family as we mentioned this morning thought he was a, a madman he'd lost his mind we we mentioned this morning that they thought he was crazy because he predicted he would suffer that he would be killed that he would be rejected that he would be raised from the dead and here in in this phrase the idea that anyone would call him lord was just nuts They had logical reasons to say that. He was an uneducated carpenter's son. He was outside of the religious system. He was an itinerant preacher with a band of unschooled fishermen. Not only did they think he was crazy, they thought him a blasphemer, someone who curses God. Hearing those things is why they wanted to kill him. So we read in John chapter 5, for this reason, They tried all the more to kill him, that is Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. There are those in the world today still who would see his claim to lordship as blasphemy. Our Muslim friends all would still claim that Jesus' claim to divinity is blasphemous. To call Jesus God carries the same offense in Islam as it did to the Pharisees in Jesus's today. But much has changed in how we see Jesus today. We see that the prophecies that he made came true. In his own day, they came true. He was rejected, he did suffer, he was crucified and killed and rose from the dead. But also, historically, Through the ages, we see that his prophecies that he preached have come true against all odds. So he said, for example, that his gospel would be preached throughout the whole world. And it's happened. And regardless of whether or not you believe his words, you you must acknowledge that what he said has been one of the greatest forces of change the world has ever seen. And one more thing about Jesus, it's, it's not just that we see his prophecies come true in his own day or prophecies come true after his death historically. It's there's, there's this transcendent thing about the shared experiences of all believers. Leanne and I have directed short-term programs around the world. We've been in North Africa, we've been in Guatemala, we've done a lot of work in East Africa. We love East Africa, primarily Kenya. It was in Kenya that this really came into, into shape for me about what it means to have shared experiences in Christ. Uh, we we had assignments of students. We would take university students all across East Africa and put them in either missionary homes or Kenyan pastor homes. These were often in extremely rugged situations. And we were in the Masai Mara. I had just rented a car. If the rental car agency had known where I was taking their little Fiat Uno, they would have never rented me the car. Uh, I had classic missionary directions. Go to the tree, <laughs> take a left, don't worry, it's the only tree. You will drive 10 miles down a dry riverbed, you know, classic missionary direction. So I do that. I'm down the dry riverbed. I drop off these two students with a missionary house. They are terrified in the middle of the Maasai Mara, the uttermost. And uh, I see them getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror, (laughs) and they're like forlorn, I've left them there. And I am just full of life that I'm getting to drive around in the Maasai Mara among zebras and ostriches, occasional big cat, and an occasional uh, Maasai man who lived in the Maasai Mara. The the Maasai are the tall, nilotic people of of the Serengeti Plains. You know, they stand like this with their spears. They're really into cows. They love cows. In fact, they treat cows like money. They stand like this under acacia trees. Often this is the image of East Africa, the Maasai. They're very, very colorful people. They wear blankets. They have cut, hooped ears. And by the side of the road, as I'm driving down this dry river bed, there are two Maasai guys standing there with their spears. And uh, they're going like this, which means they wanted a ride. They're hitchhiking a ride. So I why not, right? (laughs) So I stopped the car. uh (laughs) Well, they can't be going too far, and um, so I mean these guys. These guys had lived in the Masai Mara all their lives. They didn't know how to get in the car. I had to get out and show them how to use the door handle. We get them in the car. One spear out that window. One spear out that window. We're driving. We're driving down the road. They didn't. They didn't know how to use the door handles, but they immediately recognized the radio. Oh, you. Oh, you know they want the radio on. We're in the uttermost. We're not going to get a radio station, but I, you know, to humor them, I turn it on. <laughs> Now there's a there's a radio station. I tune it in. It's Dolly Parton <laughs> and uh, Kenny Rogers <laughs> singing Islands in the stream. And, and these guys like it. You know, they're they're slapping their knees. We're driving down. I'm thinking this is really weird. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try I know about I know about greetings in about 30 languages and, and they always get me in trouble. But anyhow I go, I Hey, they say, I and Uh I say yesu, uh and uh, they go, oh yeah uh, okay, um, you know Um So I'm I'm uh, in Maasai. I'm asking them, how are the children, and how are the cows? <laughs> They're into cows, and uh, the cows are fine. They tell me That's the way it goes. And then I know a little bit more Ma. Just a little bit more. I say mesezi Kai. They go, ah, and Kai. And I say, Yesu." They go, Yesu." The guy in the back grabs me. Boom. Like this. I almost go off the dry riverbed. <laughs> the guy next to me is beating me on, on the shoulders. And he's using the other word that we both know, which is hallelujah, hallelujah. Because I've just given the ritual greeting for Christians. These are born-again believers in Christ. I didn't see it coming. I had some of the sweetest fellowship I've ever had in my life driving back from Narok to Nairobi with these guys. Because we had a shared experience in Christ. We, we shared a born-again love of Jesus. Look, you took a white guy from Kentucky, you plop him down in the middle of East Africa, and you connect with Maasai herdsmen who know nothing about my culture, I know nothing about theirs, except Jesus There's no way to explain that, except, except the fact that Jesus is the Lord of the whole world. So certainly, the evidence of history, the evidence of these shared experiences tell us that people were just flat wrong when they saw Jesus as crazy. No longer do we look back on Jesus and think he was a crazy man this itinerant preacher making outlandish claims, millions have preached his words. Tens of thousands of seminaries and institutions of higher learning have been established to proclaim his names. And so when you hear testimonies about before and after, what what identity was before and what identity was in Christ, you're hearing something that stretches back for centuries to Jesus. There's no better evidence that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He is as he claimed. So today, when Jesus claims to be Lord, you should at least listen to what he says and what he means. So when Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, it is a necessary, but not sufficient statement. Any any philosophy majors here? Not a single one. Oh, bless you! There we have a philosophy major in the back right corner. Well, a philosophy major understands, uh, you know, statements that are necessary but not sufficient. That is, there will be those who call them call Jesus Lord, who will enter into heaven. But there's those who won't. It's necessary, but there's more to it. Jesus is saying it's not good enough just to call him Lord. Churches, churches are filled with people who, who say that Jesus is Lord. They may not reject him outright. They want the good things that Jesus promises. But there are many, many in churches who call him Lord, but they don't really mean it. It's just lip service. They're what I would call name-only Christians. But you don't want to be a name-only Christian. It's hypocrisy. And many of them don't even recognize it. Your heart needs to be in line with those words. Jesus, as your Lord, means that he wants to be the center of your universe and that your life should revolve around him, not you. Now this this touches us on an identity level deep, deep down inside of us because our natural tendency, our natural desire is to reject the lordship of Jesus in our lives. It's because we want to be God. It stretches back to the garden like we, we talked about last night. The fact is, Most people reject Christianity not because they have deep concerns or reservations about the credentials or qualifications of Jesus or that they're upset about the Spanish Inquisitions or that they can't fellowship with all the hypocrites in the church or that they're worried about the innocent people going to hell or that they believe there are contradictions in the Bible or any other various smoke screens. The fact is, most people reject the lordship of Christ in their life Because they want to be God. They want to be Bob Almighty. They want to be Jane Almighty. People reject Jesus because they don't want him messing with their lives. No matter how bad of a mess they make of their lives. According to Jesus, it's not always obvious who is following him as Lord and who isn't. Which brings us to the second phrase in verse 21 about God's will. So in the second half of verse 21, he says, we need to do God's will. What is that? God's will for our lives is very different than what most people think. Even what most Christians think. So in verses 22 through 23, he tells us what God's will is not. What it's not. So in verse 22 he says on that day many will say to me, to Jesus, Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name and cast demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then will I declare to them I never knew you. Depart from me you workers of lawlessness. That This is the day. This is the day that will come when we die. Jesus promises that our death is not the end of our existence we will stand before him on that catastrophic day that we talked about this morning and Jesus here reveals that he is the one who grants entrance and many of these people recognize him and they call him lord And then they start talking about all the good things they did for God through their good deeds. And it's impressive stuff. Did you see this list? They prophesy in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in Jesus' name. They do many mighty works. Jesus says this. They do many mighty works in the name of Jesus. Yet oddly, strangely, Jesus says he doesn't know them. How could he not know them? They did all kinds of things in His name. What's the problem? Well, now, this, of course, cuts right at exactly what most of the world thinks about how to get to heaven. Jesus is contradicting vast majority opinion. That is, we stand before God and we tell him how good we are. And how we've been and what we've done and we we know we weren't perfect but look at these good things i i mean they they approach jesus and they point to their works as the reason they should go to heaven not the works of jesus they believe in themselves to gain heaven their righteousness comes from themselves there there is a self righteousness here i look i i bet you know some self-righteous people, right? And I bet you don't like that in them. You might like them or put up with them, but you don't like self-righteous people. I don't like self-righteous people. I don't like self-righteousness when I see it in myself. You know, so, uh, you know, someone cuts me off in in traffic and I consign them to the lake of eternal fire, right? Uh, But if I cut someone off in traffic, you know, I'm late. I'm in a hurry. Self righteous. I hate that when I see that in myself. And it's there, it's in me. Nobody likes self righteous people. There's a there's sort of a, a yuck factor to self righteous people. And if we don't like it, what what makes you think God would like that? What makes you think God would like self righteousness? That we would stand in front of God and tell Him. Are good things, what we've done, even if it's in his name. He's the one, God is the one who sees self-righteousness most clearly. And if you try to earn God's favor, if you try to gain heaven in your own self-righteousness, Jesus says you are being lawless. It's lawlessness. So Jesus says to the self righteous. Depart from me. I never knew you. He's saying to them, you thought that being good in your own eyes would impress me? You can't get to heaven by your own works, no matter how good they are. I was in New Zealand. I was speaking to a group of students there was a young woman there who's a daughter of a, a missionary. She spoke flawless Indonesian. Uh, and after I'd spoken on this passage, she came up to me and said, what about Mahatma Gandhi? Why, why won't he go to heaven? And I said, well, I don't, I don't know Mahatma Gandhi personally. Uh, so I'd hate to tell you that he's going to heaven or hell. I, don't, I just don't know him. But I can tell you this. You only get to heaven through the works of Jesus. Not how many good things you've done on the world. And there's the key. Do you see it? What Jesus says, you must be known by him. Depart from me, he says, I never knew you. That's why it's not about what we claim. It's not when we say, oh, Lord, Lord. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. What's sufficient is for Jesus to know us. That is his will for you. Otherwise, we're lawless. So in summary, many people say they know God. They call him Lord. They talk about doing things in his name. But according to verse 23, Jesus says a person's access to God is based on their relationship with Jesus. So the real question at the end of the day is, does God know us? Does he know you? Does he know me? We should ask the question, what should have been in place to be known by God? What, what should be said when we all come to this day, the day? How can we be the kind of righteousness that God requires, which is point three? That is, what is true righteousness? Now, many think they're going to get to God uh, by being good. But actually, the way we get God's attention is by being humble. C.S. Lewis said that we're not bad people coming to God to become good, but we are rebels who lay down our arms. He's picking up on the idea from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul tells us we are all enemies of God. It's not just that we're broken and separated from God, we are actually at enmity with God. We are enemies of God. And so true righteousness is humbling ourselves by acknowledging that we are far, far short of God's standards. I mean, is there anything more humble than seeing our sin for what it is Uh, that is taking God's side against our sin? We take that deep look in our hearts, and we recognize there is an enemy in us. It was John Owen who talked about the enemy within. This enemy that fights against God's lordship in our lives, that presents sin as a good thing. So when we fight sin, when we stand against sin, we are in the battle, and it takes humility Humility is really just acknowledging what God says about us is true. So we acknowledge our sin. We beg for mercy. We trust that Jesus is Lord, not ourselves. He is Lord and that we will be known by him, accepted by him, loved by him. So listen, if you have never done that, if you've never come to that place where you have humbled yourself before God, no matter how many wonderful and good things you've attempted, you are not a believer. If you've never come to that place where you've dealt with your sin before a holy God, you cannot be a Christian. It's interesting, back in the days of the Puritans when everyone was a Christian, the question for them was not, when did you become a Christian or what happened to you when you became a Christian? Those are excellent, excellent questions. I was glad for Bergie to ask them tonight. But but listen, when, when everyone was a Christian back in those, those days, the question really was, when did you deal with your sin? That, that, was, that was how they determined who was truly a Christian, who had truly repented and put their faith and trust in Christ. So at best, if you've never done that, done that you're just a name-only Christian, and you should examine your life. Paul says, examine your life. What they should have said as they stood there before God, is that I'm a sinner. I'm saved by trusting not in myself, but in your work on the cross to forgive my sin. The Christian message is that our sins were placed on Jesus when he went to the cross. That he bore our sins. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then God looks on us and sees the righteousness of Christ. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We become Christ-righteous not self-righteous. Then after salvation, after that comes, this gift of salvation comes to us, our good works please Him. He works in our Our life, he gives the power and strength to fight sin. We fight sin. We attempt good deeds for Christ as a way to show our love for him. But never, ever as a way to gain his acceptance or gain salvation or gain entrance to heaven. So on the day, we will say, Lord, we're sinners saved by your mercy. Not, Lord, look at all the good things we did. You... you, you must understand this passage. I, I cannot tell you a more important passage for your life. You must understand that even religious works do not get you into heaven, do not grant you access to God. It is only by confessing sin and putting your life in the hands of Jesus as your Lord and trusting his work, not yours. It's like trying to jump to the moon. You can jump higher than some, lower than others, but nobody is going to jump to the moon. That's what it's like to try and gain access to heaven on our own strength. Gaining heaven is a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We just accept it as a gift from God. And listen, there are some of you here that can hear me. You you hear this. This is making sense. Many others, you, you can't make sense of it. It's okay. But for those of you who hear it, for those who have ears to hear, it is imperative that you act on it, on this message of the good news. Because you want on the day for Jesus to say, I know you. I mentioned earlier that the day of judgment will be one of the most important days of your life, and it is coming. But the reason it's one of the most important is because... Perhaps the most important day of your life is the day when you put your life in the hands of Jesus. Give him your life. Make him your Lord. And you can do that now, today, where you sit. If you are a follower of Jesus already today, commit to the lordship of Christ afresh, anew, in all areas of your life. Give up those things that keep you from him. Put them aside. They are just fleeting pleasures of the world. They do not last. And live for Jesus as Lord, which which starts in your heart. I want to give you eight flags to help you sort this out because the Bible does say examine your hearts. And as we've already seen, this is sometimes difficult to sort out. I want to give you eight flags, eight markers that will help you sort this out in your own heart. So number one, Is, is Jesus number one in your heart? Or do you merely merely just desire good byproducts of the Christian life, warm Christian fellowship, comfort, success, acceptance by nice people? Two, are you soft to God? Does his correction in your life, through his word, through the church, his people, does his correction... Make you want to change? Are are you distant and unyielding and take offense if there's questions about your walk in Christ? Three, do you see spiritual growth in your life? Are you in the same place you've always been spiritually? You don't see any change, you don't see any growth. Four, do you fight sin? Are, do you harbor a secret sin life that has power over you? And you, just can't, you just can't get rid of it. Five, do you depend on God or are you self-sufficient? Six, do you desire God over the world? Or does the treasures Jesus offers sort of seem pale and insignificant next to the treasures of the world? Seven. Do you trust in the work of Jesus, knowing that you are no better than others? Or do you reassure yourself by saying, well, I'm better than most people? Eight. Do you respond to his love by wanting to serve him and love him back? Or do you want to earn his love by being good? These are indications of true righteousness and true lordship of your life. So beware of these, these negative sides to things, The just the desire for good byproducts. Uh, sort of unyielding offense about challenges to your spiritual walk. There's no growth in your life. Harboring secret sin lives, self-sufficiency, a desire, an inordinate desire for treasures of the world. Comparing yourself to others. Wanting to earn God's love. When I was uh, a freshman, my roommate was John Lovett, and uh, John had been in my high school. He was actually the, I was, I'm from Owensboro, Kentucky of all places, and um, he was the only person from my high school that was at Rhodes College in Memphis that I knew, and he became my roommate. And John was an atheist. He was really cool. He had been in a rock and roll band. He was really good looking. He always had the best girlfriend in high school, you know, that kind of guy. And, uh, and, and he, he was a friend. He's actually a very good snow skier. That really impressed me. Um, John was a committed atheist. And I remember discussions in our honors English class about atheism. And he was very arrogant about all that. We get to, We get to Rhodes, and john John has been reading the Bible, which is dangerous stuff for an atheist, right? Uh, he had never read it before, and he was reading it, and he was smitten with this idea that this little band of Hebrew slaves had come up with the greatest moral law the world had ever known. He was just taken with that. Um, john had a girlfriend she lived uh, she lived in Murray. And he would hitchhike up to see her on the weekends. And uh, one day he, this is the 70s, right, when people hitchhike. you Don't, don't hitchhike. Don't do that. But John, John was hitchhiking. And uh, he has a sign, Murray. He's going up from Memphis. And a car pulls over. John gets in the car. And there sits a genuine 1970s Jesus freak. You know, the, the real deal, big wooden cross, you know, kind of. Uh, long hair, kind of wild eye look, <laughs> but but not from not from drugs, uh, from the love of Jesus. Actually, actually, the guy showed John his arms and he said, "These tracks, Jesus Christ saved me from heroin addiction." That's what that was the entrance. John gets in the car. He goes, "Jesus Christ saved me from heroin addiction." <laughs> but John was desperate for a ride. It's a long ride. It was a long conversation, <laughs> and John. Sort of freaked him out. He got out of the car. And, uh, you know, later John would talk about the pursuit of God in his life, the hound of heaven pursuing him. He felt, he felt the pursuit. He greases the uneasy feelings with weekend sex and booze and then hitchhikes back home to Memphis. Um, A couple months later, John's hitchhiking again. Uh, He's on the road, Roads, uh, no no rides, and then finally a car pulls over, and uh, John jumps in the back seat, and there, to his utter shock and amazement, sits the same Jesus freak who kind of puts his arm over over the seat, grins at John, and says, the obvious, God's after you, man. (laughs) The guy in the passion sheet, black guy. He says, uh, you know, he tells John, I, I was in jail, and uh, this guy, I've never met him before. This guy came and bailed me out, and he's talking to me about Jesus. He says, you know, white folk, don't treat black folk like that around these parts. He said, I don't know what he's got, but I want what this guy's got. John said the witness of it was so powerful. He said he, he felt like he later he would read the passage of Scripture where people call rocks down to hide them from God. That's how he felt. And finally, as, as he listens to these two guys talk about Jesus, he just can't take it anymore. The car goes completely claustrophobic. He says, let me out of the car. Just, you know, what? You know, the Jesus freak guy, Go, man, you're in the middle of cornfields, man. You ain't going nowhere, man. So John, no, I want out of the car. Let me out of the car. He gets out of the car. He watches. He watches the car crest the hill. And then he just starts running through the cornfields. <laughs> Just wild, finally exhausted. Throws down his backpack, gets on his knees, shakes his fist to the heavens and says, Who are you? What do you want with me? I love it when atheists pray. I just love it when atheists pray. It's a prayer. And the answer was, was me. I show up on campus. He's the only one I know from my high school. I look him up. I'm still trying to figure out whether or not it's right or not to smoke pot. <laughs> I mean, that's where I am in my walk. Uh, and we, we I kind of screw up my courage because I'm a brand new believer. And I say, hey, you know, I'm really awkward. Hey, you want to talk about Jesus or something? You know, you, yes. Yeah, I really want to talk about that. I was like, whoa, I thought John was an atheist. What would have gone into him? You know, it's like. Yeah, he gra- practically grabbed me by the lapel. I, I I had conversations with him on the back forty at Rhodes, intellectual conversations, and finally I came to this place. And like, Look, John, it's not good enough just to give intellectual assent that God exists. You have to make him your Lord. He's got to be your Lord. He says, "Well, what's that mean?" I said, "Well, you know, embolden. You got to stop drinking. You got to stop smoking pot." and he got to stop sleeping with Sherry. And he goes, "How come?" And I, and I said, "I don't know." I just I just know you got to you got to. John John thought about it a little bit. He goes, "Okay." Okay. No choir singing, you know, no clouds splitting. No big deal, just okay. And uh, that okay <laughs> has stretched these 40 years. John is still a friend. He's in church at 3rd Avenue Baptist Church where he's an elder for many of you who go to that church. I led him to Christ. On the back 40 of Rhodes. And uh, yeah, amazing. Amazing. What it means to make Jesus Lord of your life. Listen, that's the basis on which Jesus looks down and loves John. Not because he's an elder at the church, but because he believed. And he put his faith in Christ as Lord. You know, sometimes I think about about that Jesus freak driving down the road. Do you think he was worried about offending a non-Christian, some atheist? You know, Look, when we get to heaven, we might meet this guy, this guy who had this ministry along the road between Murray and Memphis. And who knows how fruitful that was? Just calling people to make Jesus Lord. I want to call you to that, just like that Jesus freak. I want to say, listen, I think God's after you, man and woman. I think God's after you. And he wants you to make him Lord in faith. much is at stake. Check your hearts. Make him your Lord. John's a lawyer now. (laughs) I think that's really funny. Uh, Very successful lawyer. He takes me out for lunch occasionally. He owes me. (laughs) We go to nice restaurants. One day John was, he was telling me, look, Mac, I don't I don't understand the sovereignty of God. I can't get this. How one day we're going to get to heaven on the day. And um, we're going to be there. And you're going to throw your crown down in front of Jesus on the feet of Jesus. And that's my life. I don't know how you get credit for something God did in my life. But I know it's true. And I just want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you. If you know Jesus is Lord, I want to call you to call other people to the Lordship of Christ. It's the best thing you can do for friends and family, those you know. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh Lord, we call you Lord Jesus because you are. We would ask that you make our hearts humble before you that we recognize our sin for what it is and an affront to you, that we never count our, our own goodness, our righteousness, our own self-righteousness, knowing that it is lawlessness before you. We pray, Father God, that you would accept us because of the work of Christ who calls to our hearts to put our faith and trust in you. Make it so, O oh Lord God, In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Give it up for Mac one more time. You guys been enjoying him? We get Mac one more day tomorrow. But again, like we do after every talk, we're going to have some time of discussion. Just to remind you again, we have that one thought page on there. So as you guys are looking through um, and discussing with the people around you, make sure to write down that one thought. And the discussion question today um, is going to be which one of those eight flags, those eight markers that Mac was talking about, is the most challenging for you. Um, We're actually also going to have on the screen for a few moments, just going to be clipping through each one of those flags, if maybe you forgot or couldn't write them fast enough. I somehow did it, but it doesn't look very good. So we're going to have those up there on the screen, so we're going to have some time of discussion. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at conycindy.com.